Section 4 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombaugh Pretended Death Part 4 Substitution of a Body or Padding That history repeats itself is frequently shown in the substitution of another body or of padding in a coffin at the time of burial. There, for example, was Franz Tomaszek in Berlin in 1848, who had been heavily insured and who, impelled by irresistible curiosity and disguised beyond recognition, attended his own funeral. But when the police were put upon the trail, and disinterment took place, the contents of the coffin was found to consist of stone and straw. There was the case in 1874 of Uling, a New York physician who was convicted of an attempt to swindle a local life company and sentenced to Sing Sing, where he served out his term. He certified to the death of an insured woman, and the company was called upon for payment. But suspicion led to an examination, and it was disclosed that instead of a dead woman, there were a hundred and odd pounds of bricks in the coffin, for the death of the contents of which payment was demanded. In another case, the coffin was filled with sand. This occurred in 1880 at Fillmore, a village in Andrew County, Missouri. The coffin was supposed to contain the remains of James Riggan and was exhumed in consequence of well-grounded suspicions of fraud. Some time before, Riggan had insured his life for the benefit of his aged mother and then left for the West. Soon afterward, his brother-in-law received a letter announcing his death at North Platte, and going thither, he returned with a coffin which was not opened because of the supposed decayed condition of the remains. Application being made for the insurance, investigation led to the discovery of the sand and exposure of an intended fraud. Regan being still alive and the principal agent in a conspiracy to defraud a life insurance company. A case which merits more than a passing notice is that of Vital Dois. One of the most remarkable of the London police is Sergeant Druskovich. No one looking at the short blond mustached and rather dandified young man would suspect him of being the cleverest of detectives. He speaks any number of languages, 
and is therefore nearly always sent abroad when any case occurs in a non-English-speaking country, needing the services of an English detective. In London, his special work is among foreigners who go there as fugitives from justice. Druskovich was engaged to work up this case. In 1865, Vital Dua, a Bordeaux wine merchant, insured his life to the amount of 100,000 francs in one of the insurance offices of Paris, after which he returned to his place of business at Bordeaux. Shortly afterward, he went to London in order to escape the consequence of a fraudulent bankruptcy. Some time later, his wife, clad in widow's weeds, presented herself at the insurance office with the legal documentary proofs of her husband's death. Suspicion was aroused in the minds of the insurance officials at Paris. The money was not paid, and the case was forwarded to the British authorities for investigation. Sergeant Druskovich was called in and succeeded in ascertaining the following extraordinary facts. Arriving in London, Dua took up his residence at Ford's Hotel, giving the name of Robert T., where, after remaining for a few days, he desired a French waiter at the hotel to write him out a certificate in English purporting to be signed by Dr. Cotit to the effect that one Vital Dua had died on the 29th of November, 1865, of aneurysm of the heart. On the 1st of December, this certificate was presented to the Register of Deaths at Placedow by Dua, who now assumed the name of Bernardi, and the death was registered in the usual way, it being stated that the body was then lying at number 32 Ann Street, Plaistow. On the same day, he procured a certificate from the Register of Deaths, and thereupon the sexton of St. Patrick's Cemetery, Low Layton, ordered a grave to be dug. Dua, alias Bernardi, paid the regulated burial fees, and appointed the following Sunday for the funeral. Having made these arrangements, he then went to the undertaker, to whom he gave the name of Rubini, and purchased a full-sized ready-made coffin, in which he caused to be placed a thick lining of lead, and the handles altered from the sides to the ends of the coffin, in the manner usually adopted in France and other continental countries. Dua had the coffin conveyed to the cemetery, himself being the chief and only mourner. The coffin and supposed body were taken into the chapel of the cemetery, where the burial services were read over it by the Reverend Mr. McCoyd, and with all the ceremonies of the Roman Catholic Church, the ostensible remains of Dua were consigned to the earth. The whole of these circumstances 
which in themselves were highly suspicious, induced Sergeant Druskovich to apply for a license to exhume the coffin said to contain the body of Vital Dua. This having been obtained, Sergeant Druskovich and two persons who were personally acquainted with Dua proceeded to the cemetery. Upon being exhumed, the coffin was opened in the presence of the officers and the two witnesses who had attended for the purpose of identifying the body of Dua and was found empty. The whole of the burial was a sham. The weight of the supposed body of Dua had been made up for by the introduction of an additional quantity of metal to the lead lining. Upon these facts, a warrant was granted for the apprehension of Dua. A search was immediately instituted by the officers, and the result was that they discovered the delinquent had taken his departure for America and was thus beyond the pale of English law. Some time afterward, he returned to Europe and went to Antwerp, where in November 1866, he was arraigned before the criminal court for attempting to obtain sums of money from insurance companies by setting fire to goods he had insured at high rates. Two barrels of tar and the debris of cases which contained resin, chips, alcohol, powder, and charcoal were produced in court. An Antwerp underwriter had insured this property for $24,000 against sea risks. The prisoner represented that the cases and barrels contained laces and clocks valued at $50,000, for which he produced invoices. The cases, however, ignited in the key before they were shipped on board the Duc de Bourbon, the ship chartered to convey the cargo. The jury, after a lengthy trial, found the prisoner guilty and sentence of death was passed on him. But the French government claimed him under its extradition act, and he was handed over to be dealt with by the tribunals of that country for his fraudulent bankruptcy and also for his attempted fraud on the Paris Life Insurance Office. For the latter offense, he was tried, found guilty, and sentenced to penal servitude. The Ohio Broom Corn Case Toward the close of the year 1866, a plot was contrived to rob two or three life companies by a gang in Eaton, Preble County, Ohio, composed of B.M. Bachelor, an apothecary and local insurance agent, William Abbott, a class leader and mayor of Eaton, Dr. N. S. Richardson, who on a previous occasion had successfully swindled a life company out of $4,000, and his brother Frank, 
who lived near Lebanon. These confederated scamps invented a fictitious personage whom they named W.T. McFadden. This dummy, personated by the pious abbot, was insured for a large amount and, when the plan was fully matured, managed to die on Christmas Eve of cholera, conveniently introduced at that unusual season because of the rapidly fatal collapse incident to the Asiatic malady. This part of the tragic farce was enacted in Frank Richardson's house in Lebanon. His wife, innocent soul, had been conveniently sent to visit her own people that the coast might be entirely clear for the conspirators. Frank called it an undertaker's and ordered a coffin for a gentleman who had died at his house of cholera. Thence he went to the telegraph office and dispatched this message to Eaton in care of Bachelor. Mrs. Sarah McFadden, your husband died here this morning. Answer. Hasty preparations were made for departure with the corpse to Eaton, where it was deemed advisable to have an immediate funeral. Chloride of lime was freely sprinkled about the premises, and cautious avoidance was enjoined upon the neighbors. The coffin lid was screwed down, and the mournful satisfaction of gazing upon the remains was denied. The only assistance solicited was to lift the coffin into a wagon early on the following morning, which was done by friends and neighbors cheerfully, but not without a twinge of suspicion of foul play. The Richardson brothers, there were four of them, were all clouded with a bad reputation. If they had borne a better character, the good people of the vicinity would not have suspected criminal taint even under such strange and singular circumstances. But after the wagon had been driven off, they freely discussed among themselves these unusual proceedings, and the more they compared notes, the more they became convinced that the interference of the legal authorities was demanded. Accordingly, Dr. H. White, the coroner, started in pursuit to Carlisle Station, whither Frank had said he intended to take the body for shipment to Eton. Arriving at Carlisle, the coroner failed to obtain any tidings whatever of the funeral party and the suspicion that a very serious crime had been committed was strengthened hour by hour. Frank Richardson's house was searched by an eager crowd. Officers were dispatched to Eton, and telegrams from the latter place disclosed the fact that no man of the name of W.T. McFadden had ever lived there. Though, to complicate matters, a woman called Sarah McFadden, professing to have a husband named W.T., 
had spent some weeks in Eden shortly before, but had gone away no one knew whither. Frank Richardson turned up at Winchester, near Eton, where he was met by a hearse and a carriage containing two women closely veiled. The coffin was transferred to the hearse, and the little procession proceeded on its way with a solemnity befitting a funeral occasion. The movement was timed so as to reach the churchyard at midnight. Dr. Richardson, in order that his dear friend Mac might have the full benefit of Christian burial, had engaged the attendance at the grave of his beloved pastor, and at his special request the clergyman delivered a brief discourse upon the uncertainty of life. Dr. Richardson was a member of the church, and, though not in good standing, was recognized as such. This dramatic scene occurred on the night of December 25, 1866. Early the next morning, the Lebanon officials arrested the actors who had thus devised and performed their parts in the midnight burial. They then endeavored to employ the sexton in the work of disinterment, but found that personage rather shaky. He had had the cholera once, and he was afeard of it. The blame thing, said he, smelt powerful bad last night, and its disturbance, in his view, would be attended with dangerous consequences. A greenback, however, overpowered his resistance, and, swallowing his aversion, he went vigorously to work. The grave was opened, and the coffin was raised, but on lifting the lid, the searchers found not a body, but a few sacks filled with broom corn seed. Upon this unexpected discovery, the two Richardsons and Bachelor were taken to jail. The other conspirators escaped, the woman returning to Cincinnati, where she was a notorious Cyprian, and as Abbott, the personator of Macfadden, was declared to be dead, and as there is no warrant of authority to arrest a man for being dead, the scamp was allowed to go unnoticed. A trick that did not succeed. In the month of July, 1865, the body of a dead woman in the advanced stage of decomposition was discovered in a field adjoining the town of Richmond, Indiana. A coroner's jury was at once impaneled and the evidence taken before it went to show that it was the body of Mrs. Mary Davis, wife of John B. Davis, a shoemaker who resided in Richmond. Mrs. Davis had been missing from home for some time and could not be found. The clothing upon the dead body was recognized as that of Mrs. Davis. 
the decayed condition of the body was such that it could not be determined whether or not there were external evidences of violence upon it. But it was generally conceded that she had been murdered. It subsequently appeared that Mrs. Davis was insured in the Connecticut Mutual Life Insurance Company for $2,500 and in the New York Life Insurance Company for $3,000. Proofs of death based upon the evidence brought before the coroner were furnished to each company and the New York Life paid the amount of its policy to the guardian of Mrs. Davis's children. The Connecticut Mutual would not pay on the evidence of death produced, and suit was brought to recover the amount. The company instituted a thorough investigation of the case and was soon able to expose what proved to be a conspiracy to defraud. The missing Mrs. Davis was hunted down and found living in the town of Greensburg, Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania. Affidavits, one of a photographer who sent with it a photograph of the woman, one of a physician who had known her many years, and who saw and conversed with her at the date of his affidavit, and one of the identical Mary herself, dated January 7, 1867, were filed in court by the company, whereupon the suit was discontinued. The New York Life at once brought suit against the guardian for the amount of insurance paid to him under their policy, and recovered the amount less court charges, and an allowance to the guardian who had acted in good faith. Mr. Davis had rejoined his wife in Pennsylvania, and, when found, both were preparing to go south as soon as the money on the Connecticut mutual policy was paid to them. Luckily for the New York life, the money paid by that company went into the hands of a guardian instead of into the hands of Mr. Davis, who was the principal party to the conspiracy, beyond a doubt. The Radloff Conspiracy On the morning of the 16th of April, 1892, the house of William Radloff situated about four miles north of Seattle, Washington, in the woods and remote from neighbors, was found to have been burned to the ground. In the ruins were the charred remains of a man. The natural inference on the part of the neighbors was that Radloff, who had been sleeping there alone more than a week, had perished. Ratloff was a German, 28 years old, and had married two or three years before an American wife with whom he had not been happy. For three or four months, a handsome young Austrian, Louis Kostrock, lived with the family and was on very good terms with the wife. At the time of the fire, 
She and her baby were visiting her parents near Tacoma. Kostrak was also absent, and the authorities jumped to the conclusion that Kostrak had murdered Radloff in order that Mrs. Radloff might be free to marry him. Kostrak was arrested. In his possession were found a love letter from Mrs. Radloff and a money order made out for her by her husband. Kostrak was at first reticent and denied having talked with Radloff the day before the fire. At last he said that perhaps he might tell what he knew if he were assured that he would not be hanged. The police were convinced that they had the criminal in their hands and searched no further. The case was then complicated by the discovery that within two months, Radloff had taken out $55,000 life insurance, $20,000 in the New York Life, $20,000 in the Equitable, and $15,000 in the Mutual Life. The insurance men inclined to the belief that Ratloff was not dead, but had entered into a conspiracy to defraud the companies. A cemetery near the Ratloff house was examined and evidence was obtained that the body in the ruins had been taken from one of the graves there. The chain of proof was so complete that at the inquest, the whole story came out by Kostrock's confession. Kostrock said that he and Radloff and Mrs. Radloff planned the whole affair. Radloff, on March 9th, applied for insurance in the three companies named and was passed by the physician as a first-class risk. In the mutual life, he paid an annual premium on his policy, and in the two others, he arranged to have the payments made quarterly. In each case, he made payment within two weeks of the fire. The amount of the insurance was considered by the agents as rather remarkable, but Radloff, who had lived in this country for over eight years, had made a snug fortune in real estate and also professed to have a steady income from family estates at Mecklenburg in the old country. He said his wife had consulted a fortune teller who had predicted his death and he had taken out the life insurance to allay her nervousness. A few days after the medical examiners had passed him and the applications had been sent to the home offices for acceptance, Radloff and Kostrock went by night to the cemetery and dug up the body of R.D. Lewin, a neighbor of about the same age as Radloff, who had died of consumption on February 17th. They took out the coffin but left the wooden box that had enclosed it. The coffin with the body was buried again in the chicken yard near Radloff's house. Then the conspirators waited for the insurance policies. 
When they were received and everything was ready, Mrs. Radloff was sent away to her parents, and Radloff and Kostrock dug up the body, stripped it, and put a pair of Radloff's old trousers on it and laid it in Radloff's bed. Then they filled the room with shavings, poured coal oil all about the house, placed an axe near the bed, and set two lighted candles in the midst of the inflammable materials. The candles burned down in about three hours, and the men, who had by this time got well away from the scene, saw the flames light up the sky. Radloff, as was afterward learned, started the same night for San Francisco, but Kostrock remained behind. He played a clever part after his arrest, hoping to be considered a murderer and to divert the officers so that no description of Radloff would be telegraphed abroad. He was, however, prepared to prove an alibi later. The grave of Lewin was found to be empty, and the handles of the coffin were picked up in the ruins of Radloff's house. Mrs. Radloff denied any knowledge of the conspiracy, although Kostrock says they were all to meet in Germany and enjoy the life insurance money. A few days after these revelations, Another sensational phase in the case was developed in the arrest of Dr. Frank R. Ballard of Fremont, a suburb of Seattle. The arrest was made on the confession of Mrs. Radloff, partly through fear of Radloff on account of Ballard's intimacy with her. Ballard entered into a plot with Radloff and Kostrock to defraud the life insurance companies out of $55,000. It was arranged that Ballard would swear that the cadaver found in the burned ruins of the Radloff house was William Radloff's body. This he did. He was also to assist Mrs. Radloff, who was to remain at Seattle, in collecting the insurance from the life companies. For his aid, he was to receive $10,000. The police were already on the track of Radloff and soon had him, as well as the rest of the gang, in custody. End of Section 4